Welcome to Adopted Feels, a podcast about anything and everything adoption related. Before we get into today's episode, we need to issue a strong content and trigger warning. This episode contains discussions of suicide, self-harm, and eating disorders. Due to this content, we'd like to encourage any listeners who have mental health symptoms at present or have faced mental health challenges in the past to consult with your therapist, if you have one, before listening. Also, at around the 40-minute mark, our guest speaks in more detail about her suicide attempts. She treats this topic very carefully, and we have edited this section, but listeners may want to skip ahead at this point. We've consulted some media guides when putting these episodes together, and we feel it important to stress at the outset that we are in no way suggesting that being adopted will lead to suicide attempts or death by suicide. But what we do want to do is contribute to our community's understanding of suicide and to normalize discussions surrounding it. And there are support services out there. We encourage everyone to familiarize themselves with them. We're releasing these episodes along with a list of crisis and non-immediate support services, as well as suicide prevention training programs for Australia, Korea, and the U.S. You can find this list on our website, tinyurl.com forward slash AF support. So mental health has always been important to us here on Adopted Feels, and May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Today's episode is the first in a three-part series on a very sensitive topic, adoptee suicide. And this series is dedicated to a special member of our community who died last year. We're aware that our timing with this series in the midst of COVID may seem just a little strange and insensitive. But this is an issue we've wanted to discuss for a long time, and we're not sure that any time would have been ideal. If you happen to be struggling right now, as many adoptees in our community are, we would like to gently encourage you to consider skipping these episodes for now and perhaps coming back to them later. We also need to remind everyone that we are not experts on this subject, nor mental health professionals ourselves. However, we've consulted with a licensed clinician and we've done our best to use appropriate suicide sensitive language throughout this series. By now, many of us have probably heard about some of the research that's been conducted in this area. A handful of studies have found that adoptees are at a higher risk for attempted and completed suicide than the general population. A 2001 U.S. study found that adolescent adoptees were more likely to have attempted suicide and to receive counseling than their non-adoptive counterparts. There have also been two widely cited Swedish cohort studies. Research from Sweden is particularly useful as the country uses national registers that keep track of the population using personal ID numbers. These studies are hence able to obtain and analyze relatively comprehensive data on Swedish adoptees. A 2002 study identified roughly 11,000 intercountry adoptees born between 1970 to 79. They found that adoptees were three to four times more likely to have attempted suicide. A 2006 Swedish study reported similar findings. This later study also found that the risks for both attempts and completed suicides were higher for adoptee women than adoptee men. More recently, a 2013 study in Minnesota looked at the risk of suicide attempts among adopted and non-adopted participants. This study included roughly 700 adopted adolescents. 
Researchers found that in a roughly three-year period between intake and first follow-up, adoptees were roughly four times more likely to report a suicide attempt relative to their non-adopted peers. It is also important to mention that there are many adoptees who are at a higher risk due to other impacting factors and life experiences, including, for example, LGBTIQ plus folk, people with disabilities, incarcerated and previously incarcerated folk, adoptees without citizenship, and veterans. On a more personal note, we'd like to share our motivations for creating this series. For me... I was always aware of a higher rate of suicide amongst adoptees compared to our peers, but I don't think it really hit me until I was living in Korea for about 10 months from 2017 to 18. During that short time, there were three adoptee suicides in Korea, beginning with the more widely publicized death of Philip Clay. These three suicides deeply affected me. They affected me even though I only personally knew one of the adoptees who died. They affected not only me, but the whole adoptee community in Korea, as well as the international adoptee community. While dealing with my own feelings of sadness and loss and anger towards the international adoption system, I wondered whether there should have been some kind of community response, but I didn't know what that should look like. In hindsight, I guess I wanted some collective way of processing my feelings. The quick succession of deaths made it feel almost routine. I was afraid that a lack of collective action would signal some kind of helplessness, or worse, apathy. I think something that we've realized in the process of creating this podcast is that we want to normalize discussions about mental health, and specifically adopting mental health. Incidentally, I think this is something that we've realized after choosing our name, Adopted Feels, which I think turned out quite nicely for us. Ha <laughs> ha. We want to challenge ourselves to have difficult conversations in public spaces. We also want to be honest about how difficult these conversations are to have. And so we've left in a lot of those moments where we struggle to find the right or adequate words to express our feelings and ideas. That is, we haven't edited out bits where... Um, where mainly I was really inarticulate. <laughs> this topic is also personally important to both of us because we've both dealt with mental health challenges at times throughout our lives. To be really real with everyone, which is also something I believe in, I think my own mental health requires ongoing maintenance and I've largely come to accept that. Sometimes I feel like I'll always be haunted by a shadow of depression and at certain times in my life, I felt like the so-called option of suicide would be a relief, though I never seriously planned it. So when I hear about a suicide within our community, part of me thinks, if my own cards had fallen slightly differently, if I hadn't been fortunate enough to find support and good people, that could have been me. I feel like the could have been me feeling is particularly heightened because we're adopted. You know, that we could have easily been adopted to somewhere else and had a different name. And so too with the tough and painful stuff. I have definitely had difficult times. I've also struggled with depression and I'm still learning how to understand my experiences, how to talk about them and how to make deeper and stronger connections with adoptees and other people in my community. 
Basically, we've wanted to address this topic for a long time, but we were also afraid, afraid of doing it justice, of presenting ourselves as some kind of experts, which we're not, and getting triggered ourselves by the weight of this topic. We've both learned so much in the process of putting these episodes together. We really want to contribute to this important conversation, and we hope that this series will help to raise awareness, center the voices and experiences of adoptees in a way that is ultimately hopeful and life-affirming, and spark further conversations within our community. So our first episode in this series, today's episode, is an interview with Korean adoptee Pamela Kim Adams who we feel so very privileged to have met and spoken to. Pamela is a speaker with lived experience, and we have to say this was one of the most important and heartfelt conversations we've had on this podcast. She has so much to share with the adoptive community. We were so struck by her openness, insight, passion, and kindness. Hi, Pam, and thank you so much for being willing to talk to us today. Would you like to uh, start by introducing yourself a little bit for our audience? Sure. Hi, Hannah and Ryan. Um, Thank you so much for having me do this interview this morning. It really means a lot um, to be able to address this very important subject um, for adoptees. Um, So as far as my biography, I'm not sure how brief it will be, but (laughs) I'm 39 years old. Uh, I was adopted from South Korea at the age of seven months after being with a foster family. Um, I grew up in Rochester, New York, in the suburb of Brighton, which is a fairly affluent, fairly white community. Um, You know... By all mainstream standards, I had a pretty good life, vacations, good schools, all of that. I had two younger, um, I have two younger Korean adopted sisters. Um, My father's family is Jewish, and his parents actually came over from Russia as immigrants. Um, Growing up, I think that I, I felt more connected to the Russian Jewish culture and to their immigration experience than to my own experience uh, as an adoptee or to Korean culture, um, just because, you know, I heard so many stories from my father um, and he wasn't even that connected to Judaism at that point in his life, but uh, culturally a lot of um, stories about what it was like growing up with immigrant parents. Um, when I was about 14, um, the sort of fairy tale life came to a screeching halt. I developed eating disorders, depression. Uh, I started experimenting with cutting myself. I was endangering myself, especially with men I didn't know. And so I kind of went from being this goody two shoes, straight A student, quiet, introverted kid to being this rebellious, wild, lost teenager. And I think my parents were completely at a loss um, as to what to do. Um, You know, I got into therapy and even the mental health professionals really didn't seem to be able to help much. Um, Let's see, when I was 20, I got pregnant 
And I think deep down, I wanted a child. Um, According to my papers that came with me from Korea, my birth mother was also 20 when I was born. And uh, who knows if that's true, but that's another story. Becoming a mother changed me for the better um, in many ways, but there were also challenges. Um, I think because I had a lot of unresolved issues with my own life and identity. Um, And there were also some difficult dynamics within my adoptive family at play. Um, So in my mid-20s, I kind of fell apart again. Um, It was actually much worse than before. I was, um, well, I'll get more into the details later, but the culmination of this terrible time was the two suicide attempts when I was 30 years old. Um, And after that, I kind of started a new life. Um, It's taken years to rebuild and kind of start from scratch um, emotionally and in some ways um, practically too. Um, These days I'm doing pretty well, although it's been, you know, it's been a rough time between COVID-19 and uh, I just ended a really toxic relationship. But you know, overall, life is good. My daughter's 18. She's she's going to college next year. I don't know if that will be virtually or um, in person yet. Relationships with my family are good. I've got great friends. I'm a caseworker uh, for refugees, um, which is very, very meaningful work, not just because, um, you know, I want to help refugees, but because I think that I feel some personal connection to uh, the trauma that refugees have experienced, even though it's very, very different. Um, Just that feeling of being displaced and separated from one's family and one's culture and the tremendous loss um, and having to sort of create a new identity. So I kind of fell into that work and it's it's really been um, the first time I've felt like I've sort of found my calling in terms of um, a career. I also spend a lot of time these days doing advocacy work um, around immigration, adoption, mental health, anti-racism, and I think that all of those things intersect and play off of one another. Um, So that's also very meaningful. And I think that having these sort of, um, having a sense of purpose in my life helps me a lot, um, as well as having different communities, including um, a really strong Korean adoptee community now helps me a lot. Thank you so much for sharing, for sharing all of that. Um, I just feel like so grateful to have, that we found you and like connected with you through your article and I just think your story, I'm not being very articulate right now, but I mean, I think your journey is, is quite inspiring. And I think that's amazing that you've, you've found work now um, that really resonates with you and, and all this like amazing, like advocacy stuff you're doing. Anyway, so just thank you for, <laughs> for sharing so generously, just, you know, just in that, in that bio. <laughs> Thank, thank you, Hannah. I'm, I'm, I'm actually um, 
when I heard that there were Korean adoptees in Australia who had read my article, I was like dumbfounded because, you know, I wrote this um, for the Unitarian Universalist community here in the U.S., really. And uh, I didn't even think that it would really gain much attention outside of the Unitarian Universalist community. So the fact that it made it to Australia, um, thanks to my friend Amy Kim, actually, who is uh, a Facebook friend. I have yet to meet her in person. But um, she shared it with somebody in Australia, and that's how um, this connection ended up happening. So that's that's really amazing, and I'm, I'm very grateful to meet both you and Ryan. Thank you so much for, for everything you, you just shared and, and your your openness. And um, like you said, I think we'll, we'll touch on a lot of the things that you mentioned throughout the, the following questions. Um, the next question I have actually is about that piece that you wrote, um, which was shared at least with me and I believe with Hannah through Linnell Long, who we also have to thank for, for being so amazing at connecting people across yes. the globe. She's, she's incredible. So yeah, so your piece, The Prevalence of Asian Adoptee Suicide, thank you for writing it. In the first place, it was an incredibly important um, and honest and really moving piece. Can you tell us a little bit about what led you to write that particular text? Sure. Um, So I don't know how much you both know about Unitarian Universalism, but it tends to be, um, at least here in the United States, um, a predominantly white membership. And um, there are some groups of people of color within the denomination that have started to, you know, get together. And so I was invited last year to join a group for Asian Pacific Islander UUs. And we held um, Zoom meetings every couple of months. I've attended a few of them and it's been really great. And I attended a Zoom meeting with them, I think it was in December or January and the topic was death and dying. And there had just been um, another Asian adoptee suicide here in Rochester. And so at that meeting, I shared that and talked about some of the impact on me as an adoptee and that there's been multiple um, Asian adoptee suicides here in the last four years. And the facilitators were actually really, really supportive and really interested. Um, one of them is named Yuri and the other is Jessica Lynn. And they actually, uh, Jessica helps publish this Asian Pacific Islander Unitarian Universalist newsletter quarterly. And so she reached out to me and she said, um, would you like to write an article on the Asian adoptee suicides for our newsletter? And I thought, sure, that would be great. And so I did that. Um, Again, I really, I didn't expect it to have that much of an impact. And um, I was mostly trying to educate people within the Unitarian uh, religion uh, because there tends to be a lot of, um, not a lot, but a decent number of Unitarian, white Unitarian Universalists who adopt children from other countries. Um, and I know there are some in my home congregation. And so I just, I wanted people, I thought that was one way to reach out to um, adopted parents and to try and 
you know, spread some awareness about this issue. And then also I ended up starting this uh, group for Unitarian Universalist Transracial Transnational Adoptees. And those same people, Jessica and Yuri, uh, really kind of encouraged me to do that and helped me uh, get that started. So I've got a wonderful Korean adoptee co-host, Ben Gable, and we've got um, a small but very enthusiastic group of um, UU transnational transracial adoptees across the country who are now uh, meeting together regularly. In that piece, you also talk about how the the typical adoption narrative that um, most of us grew up with is is limited and potentially harmful for adoptees and especially harmful to adoptee mental health. Can you um, talk to us a little bit more about that? You know, to start off, I, I would just say that the mainstream adoption narratives have primarily been influenced by adoption agencies, adoption par- or adoptive parents, and mental health professionals uh, who are not adoptees themselves. And I think this is really harmful um, when that narrative leaves out the voice of adoptees um, who you know, we're the ones who have the firsthand experience of what it's like. And, um, you know, I know for myself, I was adopted in the 80s. And at that time, there was, I think the message to people who were adopting was assimilation. Um, You know, just act like, act like they're not any different, raise them like one of your own. And, um, You know, and I think that I think we're starting to move away from some of that thinking, but I think that's still a big piece of it. And, you know, over the years, I've seen so many different um, transnational adoptees really struggle uh, with mental health and with identity issues. And as I was saying earlier, you know, I think that there there just isn't an awareness about the ways in which um, systemically adoptees are affected. And there tends to be a focus on individual circumstances or personalities. You know, she was a perfectionist or, um, you know, they had, you know, a difficult adoptive family, which those things are factors. But I think that we often don't talk about the ways in which just adoption itself is a trauma. Um, and I know that not all adoptees feel that they have experienced trauma, but I think that uh, that doesn't change the fact that there is trauma. And I would also add that, you know, there's also part of that mainstream narrative, narrative is that adoptees should be grateful and that we are lucky. And, you know, I think a lot of that culture from the adoption agencies to the adoptive parents really stress that, you know, I hear a lot of adoptive parents talking about things like to their children, you know, you were chosen, you're lucky because you have two families. The happiest day of our life was when you came home to your forever family. And I think those, those sentiments come from a good place most of the time, but 
in that narrative, there's no room for an adoptee to express pain or struggle or uh, grief. And I think that, you know, for myself, um, as a child, I was so distanced from those things, even within myself. And so I, when I started having, you know, I guess what you could call mental health symptoms at a young age, I didn't relate that to adoption. Um, I thought that was just me. I didn't know why I felt, you know, a lot of emptiness, a lot of anxiety. Yeah. So I, I guess I just think that there needs to be a lot more room for adoptive voices and all of their varied experiences um, to be at the forefront of the conversation and to say, this is what I've experienced. I think this is um, maybe a little sidebar, but it's also frustrating for me when sometimes I talk about the the trauma inherent in adoption or, um, you know, the the high proportion of adoptees who who do experience some mental health issues at at some point in their lives. Um, And and sometimes the response is, oh, but I know so-and-so adoptee who's completely fine or like, oh, but but most adoptees are doing really well, right? And um, so, (laughs) you know, which is, which is so dismissive. Um, and I don't know, it's, it's, it's still, I, I feel like even though there is on, on one hand, like this, this general acceptance or this general knowledge that yes, um, adoption is traumatic. There's also on the other hand, it's like concurrently this denial of it or like yeah. an unwilling really, I don't, I don't know. It's just, um, to me somehow there's, there's still that conflict or um yeah but between like holding those two two things at once or something I think that you know when we're talking about adoptive parents there's a lot of good intentions and there's also a lot of fragility at times and you know I see a lot of parallels with racism and um white fragility you know in that I think adoptive parents they want the best for their children. And on some intellectual level, they can acknowledge what their children have gone through. But I think that it's really hard for them to feel like maybe I did something wrong or I contributed to um, this trauma. I don't know. That, that's just the sense I get. Um, and I also think that, you know, there, there are parents who can acknowledge the loss of the culture being traumatic, but not the loss of the, you know, biological family. Um, So I think different adoptive parents have their different views and limits. And I, you know, not being an adoptive parent, I can't really speak on that for sure. But that's what I've noticed is that there are limits to what can be acknowledged. You, you've touched a bit on some of your struggles with mental health, which started during your teen years. We're wondering if others were aware of what you were going through at that time, um, particularly because, as you mentioned in your article, which I think we relate, related to a lot, that many adoptees 
as you say, struggle below the surface despite presenting as high functioning? That was a very long-winded question. <laughs> I guess, yeah, were, were others aware of what you were going through at the time? And if they weren't, why do you think that was? Yeah, that, that's kind of a complicated question. I mean, I think that my mental health issues really started in childhood. Um, you know, as a kid, I had a lot of separation anxiety to sort of like an abnormal extent. I had performance anxiety. I had migraines. I had a lot of psychosomatic kind of issues. I had low moods. Um, and no one... I wouldn't say it was really acknowledged other than as sort of personal quirks. Um, and, what, you know, when I was 14, what got me into therapy was that I had, um, I had developed eating disorders. And that was a big, um, a big thing for my family. Um, they were very concerned, so they were aware. Um, but there was... There was a lot of fear on their part, understandably, and I think they their feeling was, you know, we have to fix this. And they sent me to therapists, and they sent me to the best treatment programs. Um, but in my home, there wasn't a lot of dialogue about what was going on with me. You know, there wasn't, um, from their perspective, what was happening and what what I needed to do. Um, but I, I don't think there was an understanding. And I know that, you know, I, I think that I, even though I was in treatment, I felt very much alone. And I also, as a teenager, start, especially in my later teen years, I really became more aware of the deep sense of grief that I felt about uh, being an adoptee. And I didn't know how to connect that to, you know, the other problems I was experiencing, I just sort of shut down. And I think I was communicating through my behaviors. Um, and so what people saw were my behaviors or the symptoms, you know, she's not eating, she's um, going out to parties, she's doing, you know, acting like a rebellious teenager, basically. And so there wasn't, you know, there wasn't really, there was awareness of the the issues um, or the actions I was engaging in, but there wasn't really an understanding of the issues that were affecting me. So for yourself, when, when and why did you start to make the connection between um, adoption and trauma and your mental health struggles? Um, and did, I'm wondering when you made that connection, like very slowly, was that the beginning of, of like the path to healing for you? So when I was 17, I got sent to a very um, untraditional treatment center that was in the middle of rural Connecticut, a tiny little state. And, um, you know, it was, it was like an old farmhouse and the therapy techniques were very different. And they encouraged me to do a lot of what they called expressive therapy, um, which was essentially like hitting a cube with a bat and letting out all of these like primal feelings. Um, and, you know, they, at first I sort of felt like they were putting ideas into my head, um, but what they were saying actually did trigger something. And 
for the first time, I really did make the connection both intellectually and emotionally between um, the huge loss that I had experienced as an adoptee. I don't know if we use the word trauma. That's a word that I've really only started using in the last eight to 10 years. No one, no one told me I had PTSD or anything like that when I was a teenager. It was just, you know, depression, eating disorders, and uh, attachment issues. I think that's what they called it. And so when I came home from this treatment center, I actually was a wreck because they really didn't give me skills for how to cope with these sort of waves of grief that I was experiencing. And I fell right back into a lot of unhealthy, dysfunctional sorts of behaviors. And then, you know, when I had my daughter, I felt like part of my trauma had sort of been healed in a way because I had that biological connection. Um, I had a purpose in my life now. And, oh, I left out one thing. So before I had my daughter, when I was 18, I read this book called 10,000 Sorrows by Elizabeth Kim. And it was a memoir. She's a mixed race Korean adoptee. And she tells her story about, uh, she has memories of being with her mother in Korea and watching her mother um, basically uh, be killed in an honor killing. And then she ends up going to an orphanage and is adopted uh, by a couple in the United States who is a fundamentalist Christian and very, very abusive. And um, out of that whole story, the thing that I remembered was her memory of her mother in Korea feeding her bits of kimchi. And they lived in this hut. They were very, very poor. They didn't have really any food except for rice and kimchi. And she said her mother would save the crunchiest bits of kimchi for her. And um, for some reason, that image has always stuck with me, just as this sort of representation of this pure love Um, this familial love, this cultural love that I just feel like I have not um, experienced in my life in that way. And after I read that book, I stayed up until about 2.30 in the morning reading it. And I remember crying, sobbing for like five or six hours afterward. Um, And it just felt like, you know, it, it was this kind of grief that felt like it could just go on forever. Hmm. And uh, it was after that that I decided to start my birth search. And so when I was 18, um, one time in the middle of the night, I called up the Social Welfare Society in Korea. And, uh, you know, I, I said that I wanted to search. It's been 20 years since then, and I have not been able to find any of my birth family. Um But I think that getting back to your question, you know, there were times that there were sort of like when the adoption trauma issues were less prominent in my life, maybe because I was busy with other things or distracted, but I don't think they ever really go away. And I think that when I fell apart in my late 20s, I was dealing with a lot of 
you know, present day circumstantial stressors, but also this unresolved deep trauma that still had never been addressed. And uh, I, I definitely think that that was and is still, still, you know, something that really affects my life. I think that I've just now I've reached a point of sort of accepting that it's always going to be there. It's not something I have to fix. Um, There's good days. There's bad days. I wouldn't even call it bad days. You know, I think I just, I've sort of normalized it in my mind. Like, you know, there could be a random Wednesday afternoon where something just triggers something and I find myself, you know, sobbing for 10 minutes. And, And I'm okay with that. You know, I think that's part of the the grieving process and the experience of being an adoptee. And, you know, I was for years, I was on cocktails, different cocktails of very strong medications. I was told that I was, um, what was the term they used? Like a basically untreatable case for eating disorders um, and a lot of other labels. And, You know, I think in the end, maybe, I think the mental health system doesn't really know what to do with adoptee trauma, to be honest. And they give us different labels and um, they treat our symptoms. But I don't think, you know, I, I kind of had to treat myself in a way, you know, just through the process of going through all of these additional traumas with the mental health system and um, just sort of finding my own center again and developing a network of support that, that works for me. What does that network of support look like? Um, and did you eventually find a therapist that, that was helpful and, and it that did have some insight around adoption? Yeah, so I'll start with the therapist question first because it's a little bit easier. Um, In 2011, after my suicide attempts, I started from scratch with my mental health treatment team. Um, I had had some really unhealthy um, therapeutic experiences. I was sort of disillusioned with the whole mental health system. And by luck, I found... uh, the therapist I still see now, uh, let's see, it's been about eight years. Um, and she's wonderful. She has a little bit of a Buddhist kind of orientation. She's very into mindfulness, but she also has a really profound understanding of complex PTSD and trauma and loss. And, uh, I think, you know, it's not like she's a miracle worker, but just having those traumas validated can be so powerful. And I'm sorry, what was, what was the other part of your question, Hannah? Um, That network of support that you have, um, that that you currently have. So definitely um, adoptees and specifically Korean adoptees are a big part of it. Um, I'm, very involved with a group of adoptees locally called Korean Adoptees of Western New York. Uh, We get together throughout the year under normal conditions. Now we're meeting on Zoom 
And um, they've been a huge part of my life. You know, I almost think of it like an alcoholic going to AA meetings. Like if I don't, if I don't, don't connect with them regularly, I start to feel something's missing. You know, I, I really need to get back in touch with that group. Um, and from there, you know, I, I'm closer with some members than others. I form some really, really close friends from that group. I've also, um, I do have a good support system these days with my family. I have, you know, two wonderful sisters and three amazing nieces. Um, and also the Unitarian Universalist Church and that community is great. My activist friends, my work friends, and also through social media, just being able to connect with so many more adoptees, um, like the Korean American adoptee group, which has thousands and thousands of adoptees. So, you know, it's, it's not any one thing. I think it's, it's kind of a culmination of a lot of different communities and networks. I'm wondering, so if we can backtrack a little, if you're comfortable with this, um, like sharing uh, like a little bit more about um, those uh, suicide attempts. And I guess, Ryan, I don't know, um, can you like check me if this is not, if this doesn't come out right? <laughs> but um <laughs> I'm I'm guessing I'm assuming that that was the the, the darkest period of your life, um, and I'm just wondering if you can share with us a little bit what what led you to that that point and how what what kind of place you were in I guess at that time and um, maybe Ryan you can like I don't know if you should, we should like redo that question I just. <laughs> You know what I'm trying to, maybe you can like ask it again in a good way. <laughs> I, th- I think it's just a really hard question to ask. And I think it's, it's, it's part of talking about this, you know, difficult topic, but um, yeah, I, I guess if, if you do feel comfortable, obviously only if you feel comfortable, but um, sharing a little bit more about, um, yeah, that part of your life. Now, now I'm going to waffle on, but I, <laughs> I suppose like, you know, we often talk about lead up to dark points and then emerging from dark points and maybe maybe talking a little bit more and be becoming also more comfortable with talking about those really low parts is also important. And I think many of us can actually relate, but we just don't talk about it. I think I think amongst adoptees, yeah, this is my two cents worth, that many of us have perhaps contemplated it at some point, but um, yeah, but it's obviously very stigmatized, so we don't talk about it. Definitely. Yeah, I actually, I had never seriously considered suicide up until that point, even as depressed as I had been. Um, 2011 was a very, very low point for me, and I had been gradually declining for a number of years, really. Um, you know, the eating disorders that I had were completely out of control and they had essentially become like a passive suicide. Um, I was depressed. As I said, I was on and off all of these different medications, which really negatively impacted me. Um, 
you know, I almost think if I hadn't been on all of those medications, I would have had some motivation to try to find my way out of this, you know, horrible place I was in. But the medications really sedated me. They didn't, they didn't take away any of the pain. They just made me like a vegetable. And, um, you know, I was in and out of treatment centers. I felt like nobody knew how to help me. Um, I also, I had an eight-year relationship with another Korean adoptee that ended uh, in 2010. And, you know, I had really had a hard time recovering from that. Um, The therapist I was seeing had uh, stopped seeing me. And I had a lot of guilt. You know, I felt guilty about everything I was putting my daughter through. Um, I felt guilty about um, my family. Things were very, very strained with my family. I hadn't been able to work in years, even though I had graduated at the top of my undergrad class and almost graduated at the top of my graduate class. So I just, I felt like I was really stuck, really a burden to everybody around me. Um, The suicide attempts themselves were very, very traumatic. Um, One, both of them uh, ended up with me going in an ambulance uh, to the hospital. And in one case, I had to go to the medical psych unit before uh, going to the regular psychiatric unit. It was dreadful, but I do remember um, actually having some feeling, even as horrible as that situation was, that I was glad I had survived. And that was sort of a turning point, I think, because it made me realize that I did want to live. And, you know, I spent that fall, I was I was in and out of our local hospital, um, four times in six weeks. And during the last hospitalization that I've had since then, um, I kind of had, I remember, I have journals that I kept during that period. And um, in one journal entry, I recorded sort of this moment of revelation where I just decided, you know, I'm going to live. And One thing that was different, too, was before that point, any feeling I had about wanting to live was only for my daughter. And in the hospital that last time, I remember having this realization that I myself as a person was worth it. And uh, at that point, my parents had taken custody of my daughter. And, uh, you know, I didn't know what what the future was going to be in terms of that. But I just remember thinking, I have to stop working against myself. And I have to just, um, whatever it takes, I'm going to live my life. And so the hospital wanted to release me. um, And I had started looking into some programs like supportive housing, Um, Because I knew that if I went back to my house alone, that was just going to be like a recipe for disaster. Um, And my father was actually the one who suggested the supportive housing. And so I I looked at this program called East House, and they have all different levels of housing from group homes to independent living. And, you know, even at my worst, I presented quite well. 
And I remember meeting with the social worker or the intake person, and they wanted to put me into the independent apartment living. And I said, no, 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 you don't understand. I really need to be in a group home. I said, I need someone watching me 24 hours a day. Um, and so that's what I did. They, they listened to me. I ended up going to a group home for, um, I guess it was seven months. And then I did graduate to um, an apartment with staff on site. Um, and after a year and a half total, I moved back to my home. So it was really, I was also going to a daily pros program, which is um, personalized recovery oriented services and sort of like a day program, but it's a newer model where you sort of choose your own classes and you have an advisor who works with you. It's almost like, like a college setup. And I stayed in that program for over three years. Um, so it, it was a very slow rebuilding of my life and resetting of my own internal sense of things um, and where I was going and to finally um, just do whatever I had to do. You know, within a year of being out of the hospital, my eating disorders that I had struggled with for 16 years at that point um, just sort of evaporated. And um, it was sort of just, you know, I had, I had gone as far as I was ever going to go with the mental health struggle. And, you know, that had become so much of my identity over the years, <clears throat> um, being in mental health treatment and having these problems. And, you know, I kind of took that to the end of what was possible. It was like, Either you're going to die or you're going to do something else. So, yeah, I remember thinking about that. And I remember just being really scared to death, um, not knowing what the next step was, not knowing who I was even anymore without these, with these problems. But, um, yeah, I just I kind of just took it one day at a time and tried to um be open to a new life. Wow, that's that's such um, an incredible story and set of experiences that you've you've I don't know you've been through and you've triumphed and you've um, yeah th like thank you so much for um, for talking about that. I mean, I can't I can't imagine I can't imagine it's easy and. I guess one of the um, other questions that we had was like how you start to share or how you started to express that and, and share those stories um, with others. I don't know. Yeah. I imagine that that, that took a, that was a process in itself to be able to sort of vocalize and express that as well as like link that um, to being adopted. Well, th thank you for giving me this opportunity to share in this way because this is definitely um, a new a new thing in terms of sharing on this level, and it, it's a little bit nerve wracking, but it's also liberating because you know I think when you keep these things inside, um, it's sometimes more of a burden. And I guess to answer your question, so the first thing I did after graduating from that um, 
day treatment program is that I actually, um, I've gone back many times over the last seven years or so to talk um, at their family groups and to talk to the clients who are still part of that program, um, just sharing my story and, you know, trying to let them know that there is hope for, um, for things to turn around and they're not alone. Um, so that, that was sort of, but that was a very small sort of contained um, space for sharing. And I, and it, I was nervous, but um, I knew that they were people who understood obviously what it was to struggle with mental health. And so it, it was sort of a safe um, venue for that. I've also always been quite open on Facebook, um, maybe too open at times, but you know, I think that for people that might not otherwise really have a voice, Facebook can be, and other social media too, can be a really good platform, especially for people like me who tend to be not really a fan of public speaking and a little bit more shy. Um, you know, I, I'm very passionate about wanting to advocate and wanting to get the issues out there. But when it comes to actually speaking, um, I get very nervous. And so, um, so Facebook has been a powerful platform for me to be able to tell some of my story and to connect with other people who are um, overall have been really supportive and really um, encouraging and validating. And then this. So, um, you know, I'm also, I should mention that um, there's an organization here called Woke Art Collaborative. It's a women of color art collaborative. And uh, the founder of this organization is a woman named Rachel de Guzman. She's a friend of mine. And uh, she started doing these long table discussions um, over the last few years. And I've done several of them with her. And basically the point of the long table is to get together um, members of an in-group, typically groups that have been marginalized. And it's sort of like a fishbowl conversation where the people at the table talk to each other, but then there's an audience listening. So actually, uh, next week, Rachel and I are co-hosting a virtual long table that will take place over three days um, for Korean adoptees. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about that. I love the long table format because I think it's a really organic way to have conversation. Um, and I like that there's an audience that can absorb what we're saying and witness the conversation, but it's really a conversation among ourselves. And so I, I found the previous long tables I did to be very, very powerful. And I hope that this one will also be um, as well. Yeah, that, wow. that sounds amazing. Um, I just wanted to comment on something that you, um, that you mentioned you said that um, around that time, um, around that time of the suicide attempts, that you had that um, revelation that actually your life was worth living, that you were were worth, um, that like worthy 
and that that you were no longer going to like get in your own way and that just really struck me because I think self-worth and like self-sabotage is something that a lot of adoptees deal with um you know on on varying levels and you know consciously and and very unconsciously yeah so that really struck me and and so for you that was just something that just that just kind of hit you um you know when when you were like in that really dark place yeah as strange as it sounds it really did you know I I consider myself agnostic but if I had to say that was probably the closest thing I've had to like a spiritual revelation of sorts. Um, I mean, there was nothing really that I did to bring about that insight. It just sort of, I don't know if it was like, I finally had just suffered enough. Um, and, and what we were saying, I, I very much relate to, you know, in my twenties, when I had this therapist, I remember telling her that, um, I felt like a piece of fruit that was shiny and perfect on the outside, but rotten on the inside. And, you know, I do, I do think that that relates to adoption. I think that there's always been a feeling that deep down there's something wrong with me or there's something about me that isn't acceptable. And I don't think that's completely gone away, but I think that I, I recognize that now as maybe not the truth, but just um, a feeling that I have at times. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit um, about, you know, I, I totally, I think, I totally agree with the, um, and, and personally relate to the concept of um, of ongoing mental health being kind of, you know, this process of ongoing maintenance that you don't necessarily just get, get rid of certain, I don't know, core beliefs or you, do, you don't just get rid of all your issues at, at some point, but that you, you perhaps navigate triggers that you have or you, um, you know, you, you learn how to, to best live with, with certain things. And so I was curious about what self-care means to you on a kind of daily micro level? You know, one really big thing is just self-acceptance, self-awareness and self-acceptance. So just being in touch with where I am, um, you know, letting the emotions sort of um, be what they are. Uh, One of the treatments that I did find really helpful eventually was uh, dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT. And there's a concept in DBT um, about uh, riding the waves. And so you just experience emotions like waves that kind of come and go. Um, Another analogy is that emotions are like clouds in the sky and um, you are the sky. And so these, these things have really helped me just to see that, you know, I am not my emotions. I'm not the the state, the mental state that I happen to be in at every any given time. You know, there's there's a me that is greater and more stable than those fleeting 
situations. So I think just, you know, as I said earlier, just accepting um, sort of the roller coaster that being an adoptee can be um, and not trying to change that, not trying to fix that. Um, Also just other things like uh, getting enough sleep, eating well, um, staying connected both to people and to things that give me a sense of purpose. And another thing I'll mention is that, you know, I think body work, stuff like massage and yoga has been really good for me. I think that um, there's a lot of trauma that's stored in our bodies, um, especially from, you know, the pre-verbal stages in life. And um, I should be better, actually. I shouldn't say should, but I would like to be better. Um, I don't really make enough time for things like yoga, but I know that when I when I am doing those things, I feel better, not just physically, but emotionally. Um, it helps to really process and release some of those um, difficult emotions and traumas. We were wondering if you could also tell us about um, the Out of Darkness Suicide Walk initiative um, for those who don't know about it um, and and about like when you started participating in that with a group of other adoptees. Sure. So the Out of Darkness um, Suicide Prevention Walk is something that happens on a national level in all different states. Um, The one here in Rochester is quite large. Um, I don't know how many thousands of people attend it every year, but it's it's quite quite an ordeal and very, very moving. There's speakers before the walk. There's like memory gardens uh, where you can walk through and read about um, some of the people who have died from suicide. There's these beaded necklaces that people wear and different colors represent different um, things. Like one color means you're a suicide survivor. Another color means that you've lost a child to suicide or a parent to suicide. Um, And so you see people wearing all of these necklaces and just that visual really um, conveys the impact that suicide can have on so many people's lives. Yeah, I guess it was after the second um, Asian adoptee in this area died from suicide. There were several people in my Korean Adoptees of Western New York group uh, who really said, we need to do something. And we um, one of the things we came up with was walking in this walk every year Um, The first year we had a banner that said Korean adoptees of Western New York. And the point was really to help people make the connection between adoption and suicide. Um, Because as we said earlier, I don't think most people do make that connection. Yeah, I think we've done it three three years now, maybe. And it's something that I hope will continue. You know, it's not enough in itself, but it's just another thing that we can do to try to raise awareness about this connection. I think it sounds like also um, potentially like a really healing thing that, that we can do like as a community, you know, because 
because obviously we we all feel it in some way when when a fellow adoptee dies from suicide. Absolutely. Um, there, the Korean adoptee who died uh, just this past year from suicide, she attended a local private school. And uh, it's this private school is very close to where I live, five minutes down the road. And they have been very proactive. Um, they hired a counselor uh, who is a Korean adoptee. And she and I have communicated. Um, I've also communicated with some of the parents um, at the school. And uh, they are trying to start up some kind of adoptee uh, support group that I'm hoping to maybe be, um, they've asked me to be sort of like an advisor from, from the outside to this group. And I also have a friend from my Western New York group uh, who has started up a teen support group for um, Korean adoptee teenagers. And, you know, I think all of these are great initiatives. The trouble is it, it can just, it can be very hard to reach younger adoptees, especially, you know, a lot of them aren't necessarily connected to the adoptee community. And a lot of times it depends on whether their parents are connected or not, since, you know, they're 14, 15, 16, they're still living at home with their families. You know, I think all of these are great, but I, I, I actually believe that the most important thing is really changing that adoption narrative. Um, I think that the mainstream, the public needs to understand um, the ways in which adoptees um, often struggle. And I think that, you know, mainstream educators and mental health professionals and parents um, all need to be aware so that together we can, we can try to provide um, the spaces and the supports for adoptees to, you know, to heal and to address these issues. Because I don't think that doing these sort of isolated um, initiatives is going to be enough to really to really make a difference in the big scheme of things. The other conversation that um, we perhaps don't have is what it means to grieve as a community. And it sounds like that in, that um, Out of the Darkness initiative is part, part of that work. Um, yeah, I don't know if you, if you have any thoughts or, or things you might want to add in terms of that topic? I th yeah, I think, I think that's a great point. Um, and I do feel that the walk can be sort of that, um, that kind of outlet for that grief. Um, I also think social media, again, I know there is like a Korean adoptee memorial page where um, people post uh, obituaries and tributes to people who have um, adoptees who have died from suicide. Actually, not just specifically suicide, but I will say that the majority of posts I see on that page are suicides. You know, back when these local um, suicides happened with young adoptees, I, um, I started going to some of their funerals. And I've stopped going because there was um, 
trying to find the right words to explain this. You know, I think in some cases, the parents of the adoptees were very, very grateful um, that I was there. But I think they were also confused, like, you didn't actually know my child. Um, They were touched. But then I think that when when there was the possibility that we were there because we were grieving as a community um, and that this was related to adoption somehow, I think that became a little bit threatening or not something that they understandably in the midst of their own grief could really process. So I, I started to feel like a little bit uncomfortable going to the funerals. Um, this, this last suicide that happened last year was different because um, I did actually know this, this uh, young person. Um, she and my daughter had gone to the Korean culture camp together for many years. And um, <clears throat> so that my daughter and I, we both went to the um, calling <clears throat> hours together. But in the cases of, um, you know, adoptees that I didn't know personally, there's a little bit of an awkwardness. Um, and maybe maybe those are not the right spaces for us as a community to grieve in. Is there anything else that you'd like to add, Pam? <laughs> I think the only other thing that I would add would just to be to point out that um, for adoptees living with additional marginalized identities, I think the risk of suicide is even greater. So, you know, adoptees who identify as LGBTQ, um, adoptees who are disabled, uh, adoptees who have been displaced, um, whether because they didn't have citizenship or other factors, I'm thinking about um, Philip Clay, who was deported to Korea and then died from suicide. Um, yeah, so just just to understand that adoption is is one thing that makes us more vulnerable to suicide. But of course, adoptees can have many other identities that also increase their their likelihood of suicide. Thank you for mentioning that yeah absolutely that's a yeah really a really important point and I don't know I think like for me you know personally like as a as a queer person I think that I knew much more about how being queer would affect my mental health than I did about how my adoption might right Mm -hmm. because it's not something that get, that's that gets talked about. It's not something publicly recognized. It's not something that people know to ask about. Or so, yeah. I mean, I, I'm just gonna like keep thanking you for <laughs> for for um yeah for sharing your 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 life experiences and your insights and which have been very hard won. Um, and yeah, for being so open about your past and an ongoing healing process and. Yeah, thank you for sharing that too, um, Ryan. And and I totally agree. You know, when people think of the different traumas that people experience in life or the different marginalized identities, um, adoption is not yet something that comes to enough people's minds. 
Um, so I think that it's important that we keep working these conversations into the mainstream um, until until that is the case. And again, I just want to thank you both um, for you know everything you're doing. Um, I love the idea of your podcast in general. Um, but specifically, obviously, the um, the episodes about suicide will be really poignant and really meaningful to me, and I'm sure to many others. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, you didn't even know us, and you've shared so generously and so articulately, and I just, I think even from like from a quite a young age, you're obviously quite an insightful and self-aware person and it's been such a privilege um yeah for us to to talk to you today and actually I feel like I've had like a lot of um you know special moments like talking to people and interviewing people and just generally connecting through our podcast but this is like uh yeah ultra special <laughs> so <laughs> thank you um and i'm so excited for people to hear this yeah I'm, I'm just sure a lot of people will um benefit from hearing what you've shared this episode is the first in a series on adoptee suicide awareness which is dedicated to a special friend and fellow adoptee who died by suicide last year our deepest thanks again to Pamela Kim Adams for being on the podcast, as well as to Linnell Long, Miju Kim, Nicole Shepard, Jayran Kim, and M McKenna for their help in getting these episodes up and running. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast. We're on Twitter at Adopted Feels. By the way, this feels weird because Ryan usually does this bit. <laughs> If you enjoy the podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. And if you'd like to support us from as little as $1 per month, check out patreon.com forward slash adopted feels. And many thanks to our latest patron, Mia. Thank you. And once again, we have a list of support services, including links to suicide prevention training up on our website at tinyurl.com forward slash AF support.